0: Good morning, Hope Lower Town. Good oh, that was awesome. I, I didn't know people actually were going to respond. Uh, I wrote big welcome on my notes. Was that big? I think it was kind of big. My name is Paul Stiver. I'm an elder in training here at Hope Lower Town. Uh, just came on, Josh and myself, Josh Germl over there, and myself. Uh, I am married to Allison. She's sitting up here, and then uh, I. Uh, I didn't have like a big intro to keep the intro pretty short. Um, and then uh, I am in LDI, the Leadership Development Institute that Hope does. I work at downtown as an intern doing that. And then I'm also on part time staff with Hope with LDI as well. So that's why I'm rocking the swag. So if you want some of the swag, uh, these are not uh, inexpensive. Um, OK, <laughs> let's get started. We are in the fourth and final week of our Christmas. Oh, gosh, don't run out of breath our Christmas sermon series, Come Thou Long Expected Jesus. And we've been taking kind of a look at uh, Matthew and his gospel account, the gospel according to Matthew, and how he is laying out the narrative of Jesus' uh, arrival into the world, Come Thou Long Expected Jesus. So we're just going to get right into it. So this week, I tell you this week's sermon, an Old Testament Christmas, because Matthew is going to take us back to the Old Testament Um, But before we begin, we're looking at Matthew chapter 2, and we've got to read this as a narrative. So it's storytelling, and then he's going to bring in Old Testament to supplement what he's trying to teach. So we need to go back to last week's passage and get an understanding. So we'll start at the beginning of Matthew chapter 2, which says, After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, by another route or route. I don't know how you actually say that. Uh, So they worship. They see this king and they worship. And then that brings us to, we're getting ahead now. This is what Brian really pointed out last week. They see this king. They were in the presence of Herod, but they go to this other child, a different king, and they open their treasures and present this king with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. When you see a king, you present him with gifts, and here they give gold, A gift traditionally given to royalty, as Brian pointed out. Frankincense, which had kind of this priestly function uh, in in the temple service. And then myrrh, which is for burial and a foreshadowing of maybe what was to come for Jesus. So this takes us to our passage. And so this is the Magi now in verse 13. When they had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said. Take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. So he got up, took the child and his mother during the night, and left for Egypt, where he stayed until the death of Herod. And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said. Out of Egypt I called my son. I do have one. This was just really interesting. In my preparation, I found out that, uh, that gold that they'd offered as a gift was probably what funded this flight, this escape, and this time that was spent in Egypt. Continuing on in our passage, when Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious and he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. So he learned from the Magi that the star rose approximately two years ago. So he figured let's kill all the children Around Bethlehem, where the star rose, that are around two years and under. Then, what was said through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. A voice is heard in Ramah, weeping and great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. After Herod died, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt and said, Get up, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel. For those who were trying to take the child's life are dead. So he got up, took the child and his mother, and went to the land of Israel. But when he had heard that Archelaus was reigning in Judea in the place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. Having been warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee and went and lived in a town called Nazareth. So So was fulfilled what was said through the prophets that he would be called a Nazarene. And so we see Matthew's kind of laid out a few different fulfillments, but how's he getting there? And we got to, when we're reading narrative, we have to ask ourselves something, because one thing that should stand out if, uh, is this isn't in Luke's gospel account. The uh, writer Luke gives us his account of the gospel, and if you're new to the Bible, we've got the four gospel accounts, the four stories of Jesus's life, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and this is not in Luke's gospel, this escape to Egypt. So we have to ask, why is Matthew writing the narrative this way? Why is he using these Old Testament scriptures. So how do we read these Old Testament quotations? Luke is giving us Mary's Magnificat and and the birth of John the Baptist and boy, Jesus in the temple, he's not giving us this. So why is Matthew giving us this? And as Brian pointed out last week, Matthew is using the Old Testament to prove that Jesus is the Messiah. So why use Old Testament quotations? The reason Matthew's using Old Testament quotations is to demonstrate that Jesus is the fulfillment of God's purposes and of the prophetic witness of the Old Testament scriptures. And the prophetic witness is just the prophets that have written and spoken the words. Many of the promises in the Old Testament are being fulfilled now, Matthew's gonna argue, in Jesus. So when we read the scriptures, we have to read them from this lens. The true interpretation of the Old Testament is done in light of Christ. We read from that lens. We read the Old Testament for Christ. I got the chance, wow, nothing. I got the chance to use Nick Cage in a slide in my first sermon. I'm a big fan of Nick Cage. I had to use it. But here's what the point I'm making. Christ is the hermeneutical, that's just a big fancy scholarly word for Bible reading lens, right? He's the glasses we put on. This is a life hack. Ever see those headlines? It's always, life hack, this will change the way, I don't know, you sleep or whatever. Anyway, this is the life hack. We put the lens on and we start to see Jesus in the Old Testament. We read the Old Testament for Christ because he's there. So the lens of Christ makes the Old Testament fit. It's the final puzzle piece and it makes everything make sense and it makes it come alive. So that's what Matthew's doing. And so let's see if he's right. Let's go back to our passage. And so I I do need to make a quick comment. I don't know if anyone else has been going through this has really been struck. I've never been struck quite this year with a reverence for Joseph uh, like I have this year. Um, So we see earlier in in Matthew's story that Joseph, when he found out Mary was pregnant, resolved not to put her to shame, that he was gonna handle it quietly so that she would not be undignified in this. And then, of course, is told that actually the child is of the Holy Spirit and now here we see Joseph being told, go, protect the child and his mother and take them to Egypt in verse 14. So he got up. He just responds with obedience. And I've been really just thinking about Joseph in that. But we have to get to what Matthew's saying. And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet out of Egypt, I called my son. So he's saying something's fulfilled that's coming to completion and fullness. And he's quoting an Old Testament prophecy so he's going back to Hosea, what the Lord had said through the prophet, and here's the passage from Hosea chapter 11. It says, "When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son." And Matthew's going back to Hosea, which is very strange, because this passage, if you're familiar with Hosea, is not about the Messiah. If Jesus is using, if Matthew's using the Old Testament scriptures to prove that Jesus is the Messiah. This passage isn't about the Messiah. What is he doing? What he's doing is what uh, fancy people like myself, if you take LDI, you learn this stuff. Uh, That's a promo for LDI, by the way. You can talk to me after the service. Typology, a type, he's doing typology. He's showing that what happened then is actually a a resemblance of what happens now. Typology, uh, the definition is simply this. A type is a real person, event, or thing that God has ordained, God has set it up, as a predictive pattern or resemblance of Jesus' person and work. It's something from the Old Testament that's pointing forward to something in the new. And it's gonna come, oftentimes it comes and clarifies things that we saw in the Old Testament that didn't quite make sense. Oftentimes it uh, expands things, it makes them greater, it brings them to a greater fulfillment. And often a material will have a spiritual fulfillment somehow. So, one example is the lamb. In the Old Testament, we have the sacrificial system and the lamb, and the blood of the lamb is shed for forgiveness of sins, for atonement, for people to be right with God, and it has to be repeated. And it's a real thing that Israel practiced, and yet, was it ordained? Was it predictive? Is it a pattern or resemblance of Jesus' personal work? And in the New Testament, we see that Jesus says, John the Baptist, when he sees him, he says, behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sins Of the world. So, what Matthew's doing is reading typology back into the Old Testament and saying, Hosea is talking about the exodus of Israel, and I'm saying that Jesus actually fulfills it. Jesus brings a new exodus. So, do we agree? Let's take a look. Okay, Matthew, you're going to do this typology thing. I don't know if I'm on board with it. Let's take a look. Are there similarities? Well, you have the old Exodus, you have King Pharaoh. Okay, all right, yeah, whatever, there's kings, this happens. And then there's King Herod in the new. What do we have? We have Egyptian oppression, slavery, bondage. In the, in the new, we're under Roman oppression. We see the Israelites under Roman oppression. In the Old Testament, Moses, if you're familiar with the story, is miraculously preserved out of the Nile when uh, Pharaoh's daughter sees him after his mom had kept him alive because he was beautiful. In the New Testament, as we've seen already, Jesus is sent to Egypt to be preserved, his life spared while others taken. In both passages, we see God's sovereignty. God is over the story in uh, the Exodus account, and he's over telling through the angel of the Lord. He's over Jesus' escape to Egypt. In the Old Testament, we see God in judgment. And the plagues demonstrated, I am the Lord. I'm the one God. In the New Testament, we see God in humiliation, the Son, Christ, in flight, called out of the Holy Land. And then in both do we see called out of Egypt, spared from judgment, delivered from Egypt in the Exodus. Israel is called out of Egypt. And now Matthew's saying, here is Jesus called out of Egypt to come back, spared death. To come back to the Holy Land. So we have to ask though, is Matthew reading the story correctly? Let's continue on. In verse 16 When Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious, and he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity, who were two years old and under, in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. Then what was said through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. A voice is heard in Ramah, weeping in great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. So Matthew's saying this has been fulfilled. Actually, this death, this death is a fulfillment. But here's a, uh, what? How is this a fulfillment? That seems like a bad story. And you're saying now it's been fulfilled in another horrible story? What do you mean? And so we've got to go back. We've got to look into the Old Testament. We got So what we have here is the, is the quotation that Matthew uses. It's from Jeremiah 31. And he says, this is what the Lord says. A voice is heard in Ramah, mourning and great weeping, Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. So this is a weird passage in some ways. Rachel is... Someone who has died in the Old Testament, actually died in childbirth, died bringing life into the world. But now she's pictured as, as standing over uh, Israel as they're taken into exile. And she's weeping. She's weeping as the people are being taken from the land, as their death and destruction brought on the sons. And is the lineage going to continue? So what we see here is he's actually hearkening us back. Matthew's wanting us to go back and think about the exile. So what is the exile? The exile, in theological terms, is the experience of pain and suffering that results from the knowledge that there is a home where one belongs, yet for the present one is able to return there. There's somewhere I'm supposed to be. I feel it. I yearn for that place, and I am not there, and I can tell, and I'm sick of it. This existential sense of deep loss may be compounded by a sense of guilt or remorse stemming from the knowledge that the cause of the exile is sin. So the exile is being out of God's presence because of sin. And so we see this throughout the history in the Old Testament. And this is what Matthew's calling us back to. In Genesis 3, if you're familiar with the story, Adam and Eve sin. And what does God say? Out of the garden, exiled. In Deuteronomy, when God has called the people to himself and they're about to enter the promised land, he offers up these blessings for obedience. He says, if you do this, you will be blessed. And he offers up these curses for disobedience. He says, if you don't obey my covenant and my ways, you will be cursed. And the worst of the curses is being cast out of the land and actually out of God's presence. And then we see our passage in Jeremiah 3, Rachel weeping because the children of Israel are being taken away. And Matthew says that in our verse, chapter 18 of Matthew chapter 2 says, or verse 18 rather, says that this is actually being fulfilled. What are you saying, Matthew? And so we have another Old Testament reading concept that we have to get into, and this is, Brian's mentioned it a few times before. This is the metalepsis, or or it's when when someone in the New Testament is calling back to the old, they use one verse, and it's just one small little candlelight. But they're not just saying, just think of only that verse. They're saying, light it up. Look at the whole passage. Metalepsis means take that verse, but go back and look at everything. What does it mean? Also, I had to use this one too. It's kind of required in the Christmas sermon series. Light it up, the whole passage. So we have Jeremiah 31, 15, which sounds horrible. You're saying that this death and destruction of these infants, by the way, as an aside, when we're reading narrative, oftentimes we can come to our Bibles and read a couple lines and kind of just gloss over them. Okay, so these, he gave these orders to kill the boys and they went, um, historians say that this was approximately because of Bethlehem being a small town, approximately 10 to 30 infants. But can you imagine? When we read narrative, we can step in with an imagination and say, what must that have been like? Here we are, we're living not in Jerusalem, but we're in Bethlehem. A small town, under Roman rule, we're still in exile here, we're still oppressed, and out of nowhere come assassins and massacre our infants, our babies. Where are you, God? It's okay to feel that when we read narrative. That's why Matthew puts in there things like the fact that Herod was furious. We have to understand that. What kind of pain, what kind of hopelessness was felt? And that's what Matthew's calling back, and he's saying it's it's exile and sin, it's the loss of God's presence, it's death and destruction and despair. But one thing about that is there's also hope. So this is why we need metalepsis, we need the full context. Because the very next verse of what Matthew calls us to says, This is what the Lord says: Restrain your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears, for your work will be rewarded. Declares the Lord. They will return from the land of the enemy, so there is hope for your descendants, declares the Lord. Your children will return to their own land. Your children will return to their own land. Weep no more, Rachel. The exile will end. What is Matthew saying? Christ has come to to end the exile and restore people to God's presence. He's saying, Look here at Jeremiah 31, 15. It's being fulfilled because a corner is being turned. The story's changing. The way home has come in the flesh. But how? How are we going to be restored to God's presence? Continuing on, even in chapter 31 of Jeremiah, it says, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah, restoration to the presence of God. No longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, know the Lord, because they will all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. And here's the kicker. For I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. Okay. So that's all that Matthew's calling us back to. He's not calling us back to just the one candle, but to the whole light of that passage so again though is Matthew reading the story correctly we have our last passage after Herod died an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt and said get up take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel for those who were trying to take the child's life are dead so he got up took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel but when he heard that Archelaus was reigning in Judea in the place of his father Herod he was afraid to go there Having been born in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee, and he went and lived in a town called Nazareth. So was fulfilled what was said through the prophets, that he would be called a Nazarene. Okay, now Matthew, this isn't even, where do you find this? So if we look, this isn't actually a direct quotation to anywhere. He just says what was said through the prophets. So there's a few potential options. One is the, is the word neser in Hebrew is similar to branch, similar to root or shoot. And in Isaiah 11, we see that God is calling from the stump of Jesse, a small beginnings is going to be a great restoration. Or it could just be to show that Jesus had humble and lowly beginnings. Here he is in Nazareth. If you remember Nathanael's question in uh, the gospel according to John. He says, can anything good come from Nazareth? Well, What we can say is there's a fulfilled prophecy in small things having great outcomes and humble beginnings. But is Matthew reading the story correctly? Wow, I really paused. Yes, the story is all about Jesus. Every shadow, every type, every shadow, as we just sang, every jot and tittle, every prophet, priest, and king is pointing to Christ. It's pointing forward. It's that longing, that yearning to be fulfilled. And here, Jesus is on the scene, and it's him. The one has come. Christmas shows us he has come. All right, let's go back then. Does Jesus usher in a new exodus? Is typology the right way to read Hosea 11? Yes. Yes. A spared infant becomes a new Moses. He's going to climb a new mount with a new teaching. He's going to usher in a new covenant, but this covenant won't be mediated by a human. It will be mediated by himself. Bondage in Egypt is actually demonstrating a greater bondage that we all have, a bondage to sin that we need to be delivered from. He's bringing us to a new promised land. He's the final sacrifice. Instead of the law being written on on tablets, it's written on our hearts by the Spirit. And instead of the plan being only for Israel, it's actually for all nations. Jesus ushers in a new exodus with his deliverance. And then there's a journey and an arrival. That arrival is the end of exile. So is Matthew reading the end of exile correctly? Well here he's talking about, we saw the Jeremiah, the Metalepsis, and he's invoking the New Covenant. Well, guess what Jesus does here? This is Matthew chapter 26, still in Matthew's gospel. He says, "This is Jesus speaking now. While they were eating or this is Matthew right in the account Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, "Take and eat, this is my body." Then he took a cup, and when he had been given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the new covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink from the fruit of this vine from now on until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Is Matthew reading that Jeremiah passage correctly? Yes, yes. New covenant has come. Forgiveness is fulfilled. Jesus is saying that was about me. It's my body and my blood. If the cause of exile is our sin, the solution is the blood of Christ, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Christ takes upon himself our punishment for sin so that our exile can end. Jesus came to end the exile for sinners. This is a, a portrait of Luke 15. If you're familiar with Luke 15, that, that's, it's supposed to be representing the son who's gone and squandered his inheritance in debaucherous living. And he's cut, he's cut himself off from his community. He said, you know what? No, I'm going to go do this thing, not to come back. And then one day he comes to his senses. He realizes, no, no. I'm gonna try and return home and just be a servant. Maybe I can be a servant. And in the story, it tells it he's supposed to come back and he's not even allowed back in this community. But the story tells it that the father is what? Not even thinking about him? Frustrated to see him? No, the father is watching. There's my son. And he runs to him, which would have brought shame and indignation on the father. He gives him the signet ring, and he kisses him. He says, you are in the family. There's restoration, forgiveness in a moment. The mercy of God. Jesus came to end the exile for sinners. He makes it possible through the cross. Through pain, the penalty for our sin, we can be restored, because He took the shame, the guilt, the condemnation that we deserve. And he rose again so we can have the way home. But what about today? We're still longing. We aren't fully restored to God's presence yet. We're still longing. We're living in the already and the not yet. We've been restored to the Father in relationship, but we're not seeing him face to face yet. There's still suffering and trials and pain and injustice all around us, death. Why? Why? Because God wants to see more exiles come home. And that's why we're here, Hope Lower Town. That's why I'm standing here. I am one of these. God wants to see those around us come home. This is obviously a picture of First Baptist, which, if you're aware, is celebrating 170 years today. Well, not today, but around this. It is today. All right, awesome. It worked perfectly. So what of our legacy, Hope Lower Town? So if we just close and we wait for Jesus to come, the second advent, we know that exile, the full exile has an expiration date and one day we'll be restored to God. Come, thou long expected Jesus, born to set thy people free, born to reign in us forever. Now thy gracious, oh, born a child, yet a king. Oh, no, I'm looking at the, there we go. Come, thou long-expected Jesus, born to set thy people free. From our fears and sins release us, let us find our rest in thee. Israel's strength and consolation, hope of all the earth thou art. Dear desire of every nation, joy of every longing heart. Born thy people to deliver, born a child and yet a king. Born to reign in us forever, now thy gracious kingdom bring. By thine own eternal spirit, rule in all our hearts alone by thine all-sufficient merit, raise us to thy glorious throne. So as we close, are you reading the story correctly? If you are one of those people right now, and I've been that person, and you feel like you're in exile, do you know God's mercy, that he's ready to forgive sinners? And if you are a follower of Christ, if you have come in, how will Christ be the center of your story as we look to 2020? We're gonna move to a time of Communion and uh, worship. And here at Hope, we practice open communion. We don't ask that you have to be a church of, uh, member of this church or a member of any church. We just ask that you would say, yes, I, I bow to King Jesus. I have come home to God. We've got, a, uh, we've got the bread and the juice, which represents, as we saw, the new covenant, his body broken for us, his blood shed for us, that we could come home. And we have a gluten-free option here on the left. So please let me just... Close for us in prayer and we'll move into this time. Father, we thank you that you are merciful. That you don't just shun sinners who've rejected you, but you desire them, you seek them, you call them home. That Christ has come to fulfill the pain of the exile and he's turning the corner and bringing people home to you. I pray that we would see that happen all the more in this church, in our lives, in 2020. God, be honored and glorified in this time as we sing and take communion. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.